0: Several months back, we had started a study of Luke and then we got off for uh, several lessons because of a difference in the you know, personnel that was here at various times. But I'm going to get back on our study of uh, Luke tonight. If you turn over to the uh, 13th chapter of Luke and I'll give just a brief uh, summary of up to this point. Uh, before we uh, key into the event, we were <clears throat> first of all we noted that in looking at the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have very distinct similarities, and that's why they're referred to as synoptic gospels. Uh, for example, uh, John is of such a nature that about 90 percent of the material in John is unique to John; you don't find in the other gospels. It's as if he is familiar with the other three and is writing and giving us information that is, that is not there. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke primarily zero in on the uh, part of the ministry of Jesus in and around Galilee. And one thing we note that is, has always been very interesting to scholars down through the years, and that is here we have Jerusalem as the holy city, the, the, the center of all Judaism, And yet, as we read the Synoptic Gospels, very little of Jesus' time is actually spent in Jerusalem. Uh, We have him making these pilgrimages to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover and the various feasts during the year, but most of his time is in Galilee, so far as the record in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In John, it's the opposite. John spends most of his time with the ministry of Jesus in and around Jerusalem, and in John, we... Uh, learn why that Jesus didn't spend a lot of time in Jerusalem. Every time he went to Jerusalem, he got into an argument with the religious leaders, Uh, there was a very vigorous debate, and they generally wanted to kill him. And so he (coughs) left and hesitated about coming in again because of the the desire to take his life. Luke of the Synoptic Gospels is unique in the sense, among the Synoptics, in that it gives its information in at least somewhat of a chronological order. Uh, Matthew gives us the material in a a topical fashion. Uh, Mark in a very um, uh, rough, to the point fashion with very little elaboration uh, directly to the point. Luke, uh, the only Gentile writer, Approaches it primarily from a chronological point of view and the discourses that you find in Matthew in a certain topic Will be strung out over a period of time in Luke as he gives it in its natural setting as the as it occurred in other words You'll find Matthew gathering up a lot of kingdom sayings by Christ and sticking them together or a lot of miracles and putting them together or parables and putting them together uh, whereas Luke will give you these events uh, as they took place uh, in the ministry of Christ, and we'll work it into that specific time. As we're into the, the section of Luke that we're in right now, right about the 13th chapter, this section starts uh, about the 9th chapter, verse 51. If you want to uh, turn over there and notice the, what is going on. The 9th chapter, the 51st verse, It said, as the time approached for him to be taken to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Okay, from this point, all the way up until he reaches Jerusalem, all of this material, including the material that we're going to study right now, uh, is material where Jesus is on that last journey to Jerusalem before they execute him. And he knows what's going to happen. So his ministry has been about three years, three, three and a half. Each year he's made this trip to Jerusalem. Remember, it goes all the way back into his childhood at 12 years of age. We've got him going there with his parents. And, of course, every devout Jew came to Jerusalem uh, during the time of the Passover and the Pentecost. In fact, three different times during the year, devout Jews uh, came to Jerusalem in keeping with the law of Moses. And so Jesus now, having lived his life, he's somewhere around 33 years of age. Uh, all these years he's made this trip to Jerusalem. Uh, the last couple have been very unpleasant. Uh, they've tried to take his life. Uh, he's always wound up in a debate with the religious leaders. And now he begins this final trip back, knowing that when he gets there, they're going to kill him. Uh, and, and we also, we're going to see something. Now it's like a uh, in uh, what happens with the religious leaders, it's like you've been in a situation where you've been very patient with somebody, and, and you've talked very slow as people were able to hear you, Mark 4 and verse 33, uh, and you've been trying to teach them about the kingdom and, and all these various things about life, They're dealing with their misinterpretations of the law of Moses, and all along the way, the very people that should be your friends are your adversaries. And that's the religious leaders. The common people heard him gladly. Uh, the harlots and the publicans are really related to him and, and, and turned from their ways. But, among the religious leaders, we have just the opposite. They have been the main opposition every step of the way. And that's something interesting to think about. And we're not talking about way-out liberals. We're talking about the most conservative religious folk of the day uh, that are the number one uh, people in opposition to Jesus. So now he comes in, uh, on his way to the city, knowing they're going to kill him, and, and it just seems to me to be a no-holds-barred situation as far as his conversation. He's very plain. Uh, the gloves are off. Uh, and he really goes at the religious leaders. Uh, and he tackles them at, at every opportunity. He seems to fly right in the face of their various traditions. Uh, you see, for example, if you flip back here to the, the 11th chapter, uh, he's performed miracles, uh, uh, despite miracles they, they still reject and they, they want still another miracle. And so you read the statement in verse 29, uh, he says, uh, This is a wicked generation. It asks for miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites, so will be the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the Judgment. When the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation." What he's saying is, man, even the, the wicked people of Nineveh repented at the preaching of, of Jonah, uh, a mere human being that was a called prophet of God. Uh, they responded uh, at this very unique situation with Jonah and, 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 and the fact that they're, they're being convinced by that that uh, he was a prophet of the true God. Uh, the queen of the south from a far land was so impressed with what she heard about Solomon that she made that tremendous trip. And now here you've got God incarnate uh, walking around in human flesh, living a perfect life, giving the perfect interpretation of the law of Moses, fulfilling all the prophets, performing miracles, <clears> and this generation is going to reject him. Uh, the Jewish religious leaders are going to reject him. And so some very plain statements. And then he gets into them, and, and let's see, verse, uh, look at verse 42. Woe to you Pharisees! Uh, you know, you give God a tenth of the mint and rule and other kinds of garden herbs and neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees. Again, in verse 43. Verse 44, woe to you. You're like unmarked graves. Man, that's strong. And then one of the experts of the law answered him, says, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us too. So he's insulting the Pharisees. And the lawyer says, you're insulting us too. And so he tackles them. And you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you! And he continues on. And then he says in verse 49, I'll send them prophets and apostles, and some they will kill, and others they will persecute. Therefore this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary, Uh, Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. And so, a strong statement about a judgment coming on that generation. And the religious leaders had rejected their Messiah. And I don't believe from a religious standpoint that you can have any stronger language than Jesus uses right here. And all of this is dealing with the religious leaders uh, in, in his own country who have rejected him. Okay, now, it's from that background... We get into this 13th chapter where we have all these years now, this period of three years where he's been teaching them, uh, trying to deal with their misunderstandings of the kingdom, their misinterpretations of the law of Moses, uh, the religious leaders, uh, knowing that they're going to kill him. And now here he's still continuing on his trip and we're up to the uh, 13th chapter. Uh, Mark, we'll start with you. And let's uh, uh, read on... Read a few verses on a round and stop at just a comfortable place, and I'll tell you to pause when you get there. Okay. That's so far. Again, continuing from what we started earlier in the 11th chapter. All the time he's teaching them, he's also dealing with the religious leaders. There are these strong statements of condemnation and the reason for it. And then, obviously, the strong statement of a judgment situation that was going to come on that generation. And it was because of the rejection of the Messiah and their dishonesty with the things that he was doing. (coughs) Notice uh, the first part here, where he mentions that uh, uh, two events that they were all familiar with. In verse 2, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this (coughs) way? Speaking to that... uh, a group that Pilate had killed. And then he says, no, uh, but unless you repent, you will perish. And then the 18 who died in the Tower of Siloam, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? No. What is he saying there? What have they seemingly been saying? And what is he saying in return?
1: Have they been saying that if something bad happens to you,
0: and evidently you've been sinning. Okay, that uh, the, the inter- remember the blind man in John 9 and the first thing they said, had did this man sin or his parents? Uh, the Jewish idea was that if something bad happened to you, it was because God was displeased with you. In fact, this has been something that all through the years they refused to turn loose of. Remember the whole story of Job revolved around this. The The fact that when the three came on the scene to reason with Job, uh, their argument was, Job, you have to be a terrible person and you have to have sinned against God because these bad things are happening to you. And, of course, Job was arguing the the other way. And so here you have two bad events that are happening and they seemingly have said, hey, those were terrible people, they got what they deserved. And Jesus said, "They're they're no worse than anybody else. Uh, every time something bad happens to you. It can happen to you as, a, as just a matter of time and chance as you live your life here. But we are all under the condemnation of sin. And one of the biggest problems that Jesus was having with the religious leaders was to get them to see that they were sinners, uh, that there were no righteous before God, and that these people, that these terrible things happened to, they were no worse uh, than the others I mean from the say they didn't it didn't happen specifically uh, because of that uh, to zero in on the attitude they had remember the prayer of The Pharisee and the and the publican and they went up to pray and and you know in the prayer the the Pharisee spent most of his time doing what? Okay, talking about how good he was when so, he was very proud of himself And uh, the other guy says, just be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, this guy went home justified rather than the other. Uh, The big problem with the Pharisees was, one of their problems was, Jesus was telling them they were all sinners. Every last one of them. Uh, They were wanting a king to deliver them from Rome. And so they had conjured up this interpretation of a Messiah that would come like David did and would lead them in this rebellion against Rome and the real enemy was Rome. If you could just uh, defeat Rome, and, and they had their king and their country again, all their problems would go away and Israel would be there as great, God's great people. But, but why had Israel been conquered by Nebuchadnezzar and Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome in the first place? So
2: they turned,
0: away. Uh, they turned away, sin. Uh, so that, the real problem wasn't Rome any more than their problem was Nebuchadnezzar uh, or Greece or Medo-Persia. Their problem was always sin. And so Jesus has been trying to get them to see this great truth that their real problem is sin, and they need to deal uh, with sin from this standpoint. And so here he's on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, He knows what's going to happen to him, but he also knows something else is going to happen. What's going to happen to Jerusalem? Okay, Jerusalem's going to be judged too. I mean, it's not just those few people that the tar fell on or the few people that, that Pilate killed. Uh, he's going to judge that entire nation. He's going to judge Jerusalem, uh, and he's going to judge the temple. Uh, and the big problem they had and needed to come to grips with well, was sin. Then this next statement he makes here, uh, considering the context when he talks about a fig tree uh, planted, and 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 there's only one reason for planting Fig trees generally isn't, it, or fruit trees. You want the fruit off of them. And so if they don't produce fruit, what do you do with them? them sure, unless you like, just like flowers, you you cut you want them for the fruit. And if you planted them specifically for the fruit, you cut it down. And uh, again, and he also displays, talks about patience involved in there. In other words, leave it alone for another year and we'll fertilize it. And then if it bears fruit, then we won't have to cut it down. Considering the context here, I don't think there's any disagreement I've seen with any of the various commentaries and scholars on this, is that he's referring Israel as God's people. And that fig tree, in fact, Jesus used it several times to represent Israel and the fact that they were going to be destroyed because they have not borne fruit and they've not been the type of people that God would have them be. All right, now we go directly from that into this little issue about the Sabbath day. Uh, What do you think about that, anybody? (coughs) What is obviously their understanding, their interpretation of the law relative to keeping the Sabbath?
3: They had taken it very legalistically to the point, I mean, you couldn't spit on the Sabbath. There was just... They had all this list of things that you could not do on the Sabbath.
0: Okay. They, in fact, it's interesting that uh, they wouldn't even defend themselves. They had, uh, going back to the time of the Maccabees, uh, the Jews had actually went to their death in battles because they refused to defend themselves on the Sabbath day. Of all the countries that uh, Rome had conquered, the Jews were the only ones that were not in their army. They did not conscript the Jews and put them in their army because they absolutely refused to fight on the on the Sabbath. They wouldn't even fight to defend themselves. And so uh, they had an interpretation here that you just didn't do anything for any reason. At least that's it, it, Jesus shows some inconsistency uh, in their thinking there. Um, because apparently, uh, look at verse 15, he says, Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey and lead it to give it water? So he's showing them, you you do something. You, you realize that your animal has to have water. And uh, another time he'd say, if your animal falls into a ditch, you help it out on the Sabbath, right? Now they were already doing this. He wasn't saying you could do it. They were already doing this. But what happened when Jesus wanted to do something good for a human being on the Sabbath?
4: He breaking
0: their laws. Okay. So it's interesting, isn't it, they... They, they actually will feed an animal, and, and get an animal out of the ditch, but they would not even offer mercy to a human being. Uh, they were that uh, legal with the law itself when it came to applying it to human beings. Um, Matthew, dealt. hold your place there and flip over here to Matthew 12, another example. It's interesting to me how often Jesus flew right in the face of this interpretation uh, that they had. In, uh, it was a well-fixed tradition at this time. Look at the 12th chapter. Uh, where did we leave off at, anyway? That uh, Reading, okay. Uh, let's read that 12th chapter and come on through. Uh, uh, verse 14. Starting at the top.
1: Uh-huh. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pick some heads of grain to eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple desecrated the day and yet are innocent? I tell you that one's greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going off from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they asked him, Is it it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched, out, stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill
0: Jesus. Isn't it interesting how that infuriated them, uh, the, the Sabbath? So he said apparently uh, a proper understanding of the Sabbath day was that it was a day of rest, a day to worship God, and they were not to do work for their own gain. But God never intended that somebody starve to death or that somebody suffer harm uh, because of that particular day, that even an animal couldn't be pulled out of a ditch or any, anything of that nature. And then he said the Sabbath was made for man. And, and what about David here? He, David broke the law, didn't he? And yet was not guilty. Okay, looking at that and what they came up with as an interpretation of the Sabbath, And the way Jesus seemingly went out of his way to break their tradition and to deal with with this issue, uh, is there any principles involved there? As he deals with the religious leaders, can we see anything both from his standpoint and their standpoint? They've become so infuriated they want to kill him over a principle. And it's interesting, keep in mind, he hasn't just, he's done a miracle. And, And that's got him infuriated because he didn't, keep their interpretation of the Sabbath.
2: Were
0: they, were they used to seeing miracles? No. Remember, uh, they had works of sorcery, but they recognized right away a tremendous difference between the magic and the sorcery and the miracles they were seeing. Remember when the blind man was healed in Jan, John 9 and they were questioned and he made the statement that uh, you know, we know that this kind of thing doesn't happen. That it, When did you ever hear of this kind of thing happen, that a man born blind is given his eyesight? In other words, it, it was not a, a common thing at all. It was something that in Israelite history happened only around uh, prophets that were that were manifesting themselves as spokesmen for God, but it was not a common occurrence at all. I think it's obvious
2: that the Pharisees are lovers of truth. From from the reaction because they're more interested in, in uh, you know holding to their interpretation and, and really you know reexamining you know what what they had set out as, as the interpretation of of a particular law.
0: Okay, they uh, in other words, if they're lovers of truth, no matter whatever interpretation they've got, you would be open, right? Uh, unless anybody wants to be so haughty as to say that it's impossible for them to be wrong on some point, you would be open. And uh, it, it's interesting that uh, that the common people had no problem being open with this. They heard the same interpretation, didn't they? The common people had been taught the same interpretations of the Sabbath, but yet they had no problem being open to that, and yet a lot of the religious leaders did. In other words, maybe pride or whatever it was, but they just simply were not open to it. Um, any other principle involved there? What about David, uh, doing something that was unlawful and yet not being guilty before God and Jesus choosing that as an example for them? I think you have
3: to go back, go back and look like in the Old Testament when, um, God gave the law to Moses and so on. He told him, you know, he says, I'm writing it out now, but one day, you know, I will write it in their hearts. And then, you know, it goes on and Jesus at one point condemns the Pharisees for observing the letter of the law and not the spirit of it. So I think he's, he's saying more to, to them that they need to not look at specifically what's being done, but why it's being done.
0: That's good now. You're saying that, that why something is is being done is every bit as important as what. Okay. Uh, all right. Let's go then with David. When David ate the showbread that was unlawful, then the question becomes why, right? That right. he ate it. And David knew the Sabbath law, didn't he? But he had a choice, and that is starve or eat eat the showbread. And he reasoned that God was a merciful God. And that his life was more important than the legal keeping of that. And so he made the choice to disobey that legal law to save his life. Uh, And he was fleeing from Saul at the time. And he made the choice. Uh, And by the way, the priest lost his life that gave David the showbread. But he made the choice to to do it. And so we see in that distinction, I think we see what, um, what's your first name? Hiram. Hiram. Hiram brought out. That is, I think, a good distinction on the spirit of the law, that uh, looking at the meaning behind it, as well as the the point itself. Well, what does this say, then, (laughs) if you uh, uh, if you have an attitude towards law that sometimes actually is to the detriment of human beings but you adhere to it even if it's to the detriment. Can you have a law that is right, and yet at some specific hypothetical situation might be to the detriment of of somebody? And normally it's it's right. No, is that possible?
5: I think maybe an example of what you're saying is um, the qualifications of elders. At least it is in my mind that the man the the purpose is to be blameless. And, the man is to be blameless and so he's to be the husband of but one wife but sometimes we miss well my opinion, we misinterpret and we say well you know if he doesn't have if his wife dies then he no longer no longer can can be an elder and and what was the purpose of that law it was to protect against polygamy and so have we made a mistake there
0: maybe possibly yeah a point when you have a guy maybe that's doing a good job as an elder and and his wife dies, and somebody wants him to resign, he's already been married, right, obviously, and they know he's been doing a good job, and by the way, that kind of thing happens. uh, Where a a man is an elder doing a very good job, and obviously spiritual, and and his wife dies, and somebody says, well, obviously maybe more concerned about the legality than the fact that the whole instruction is designed to spick a Pick a spiritual person that can do the job. Okay. What about um, uh, an, an ambulance driver that refuses to go over 55 miles an hour? Do you want him coming after your heart attack victim? <laughs>
1: I have a question. You lost me. Um, you are talking about David. Where exactly does it talk about him eating the concentrated mm-hmm. bread? Because that's that what you're talking about. in 721, where he uh-huh. goes to Himelech. Right. He's being chased, but he's alone.
4: Well, the is statement is.
1: I was just. Uh, it's, it's not really very important. I was going to ask you, he also lied at that particular instance to Himelech and told him, I lied for the reason he was there. Well, when
0: Saul one? was pursuing him. Right. right. Saul was pursuing him.
1: Yeah. I, I don't, does this fit in? Or is this well, a, this I don't
0: right think in? that. Uh, the uh, uh, Rahab lied, you know, and they, I don't I believe lying is wrong under any and every condition, just like it's impossible for God to lie, the Hebrew writer. But there again, his uh, his purpose was not to do anything wrong, okay, and so that uh, that God obviously looked at that different. What do you uh, that's good. Example, Darren, what do you do in uh, Nazi Germany in World War II if you're a Christian and, and Jews are being murdered and uh, you've got an opportunity to take some Jews and hide them in the attic of your home and the, and the Nazi troops come to the door? Do you tell them when they ask you if you have any Jews that they're in the attic? Well, that's a good question yeah. because
1: last summer we had a class on, on ethics and we talked about this particular story, David. And we got into a big discussion, and kind of didn't come out with a very good feeling about it. No. And I was wondering, is this the is that the right time that you're talk, that uh, that Luke's talking about, or that Jesus is talking about? Yeah, is that the same instance.
0: Uh-huh. Same instance.
5: I think one thing too, like with Rahab, when she lied, <coughs> generally we lie to protect, to for selfish reasons or for selfish gain, and and that wasn't her purpose in mind, So.
0: Right, I don't think her line was right, no. but her faith was demonstrated in uh, what she did. And she was complimented on her faith, mm-hmm. and she lied out of uh, uh, for whatever weakness, maybe, you know, that uh, maybe she just shouldn't have said anything and and took whatever happened, you know. I don't. But it also shows whether you're talking about David or Rahab, that the intent of our heart means something before God. Uh, the The intent of your heart means a uh, the attitude that, uh, uh, you know, that it really doesn't matter how sincere you are or what you <coughs> feel or what you think or your reason, the bottom line is, is what happens. Uh, number one, that's not the way we deal with one another, is it? When somebody kills somebody, we think of it in terms of first degree, second degree, third degree murder. And we know there's a difference between this lady that was in the newspaper about three weeks back and her 11-year-old child has been molested, but was molested when he was seven years old at a summer camp by, by a minister, and then they're at a hearing before a judge, finally, after four years, and the guy is sitting there with a smirk on his face, uh, and the child's been vomiting and sick all day because dreading the event that's coming back, and she pulled out a gun and shot. Uh, I don't know that a jury will convict her. Uh, I'm not saying it's right, that she shot him, but I'm saying that woman is not a murderer. She is not somebody that's a threat to go out here and, and kill. I think what she did was wrong, but but still there is there is a difference there when it comes to the intent of heart. So I don't think that we we okay what is wrong in this area, but we recognize that intent of heart is impar- is important and that God's our Father and just like we as a father to our children, when our child does something wrong, do we just uh, deal with it from the standpoint of what was done or do we take into consideration the intent of heart that was involved? Okay, well, since
1: you asked it, what do you do? And,
0: uh, well, if, uh, I'll ask I'll reverse it. If your child accidentally bumps up against that table and, and uh, knocks the glass off on the floor, one day, And then the next day, another child picks that glass up and throws it against the wall. Either way, we got tea on the floor, and we'll say the glass broke both times. Do you treat those two children equally? No. Okay, neither did I. And uh, as a principal, a big thing I do at school is discipline. Uh, Intent of heart is is very important to me. I, I ask a lot of questions and do a lot of talking before I make a decision. And the, the intent of heart, uh, is it, it, means, it means a lot to me. And God uh, deals in this way. And, and another thing, when Jesus made the statement about the Sabbath, uh, he said the Sabbath, man wasn't made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. It was for man's good. The way they had interpreted it, man seems to have been made for the Sabbath, Right. I mean, it's like that no matter if it's to your disadvantage, uh, you know, let somebody starve. Don't help them out if they need it. And he said, no, the Sabbath was made for man. So if, if laws are made for us, and if there comes to that unique situation where the law itself is going to be to your detriment, then what do you do in that situation? What, and, and I think Jesus answers this. And notice the the, the statement he made there also. He said, if you had understood this, and he quotes Hosea, I require mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. What does he mean by that, he may think? Did he require sacrifices in the Old Testament? Okay. What's he mean? I require mercy and not sacrifice, and he, and he uses this as a parallel situation with what happened right here, with his healing on the Sabbath day.
3: So he's more concerned with, with what's in our hearts than our actual acts. He did require these particular acts to be done, but it's like if you're just going to do it just to be going through the motions, there's no point in it. It's just worthless. He's concerned more with what's in your heart.
0: Okay. That's, uh, in other words, uh, when he makes that statement in Hosea, those people were actually living in an ungodly way, but yet they were worshiping God and offering sacrifices. And he said the sacrifice didn't mean anything to him without the mercy and the life that that went with it. And uh, so that uh, earlier we read over there that you tithe mint and anise and cumin but you've neglected the what? Weightier. In other words when you read that are all laws equal? You've neglected the weightier matters, love and justice. So well, that's his words. Uh, that there are ways. the things that are, things revolve around your treatment of your fellow human beings, uh, love and justice and mercy. And these laws, keep in mind, laws from God are not just arbitrary s- statements, but they're designed for a reason, and they're for the good of mankind. And so if there's a situation, uh, if you're on your way to church on Sunday, uh, and uh, somebody has an accident and needs help, what do you do? You, do you miss the Lord's Supper and help him, or, or do you go of the Lord's Supper and leave him? Yep. I think you miss the Lord's Supper and help him out. I think that mercy will triumph over that situation, that you uh, there is a way to your principle here. Does this mean that you don't, don't love Christ, or that you don't want to remember his sacrifice? Or you looked at it and you, and you really said Jesus that I, he would help that person. In fact, he gives us another good example, doesn't he, in a parable. The Good Samaritan. You know, that uh, here are these two guys couldn't wait to get to Jerusalem for religious reasons. Uh, and a Samaritan? How legally right was he? Didn't have anything. You know, but he, he's right in his heart. Uh, right right in his heart. Um, now, it... Another interesting thing to me on this, this interpretation of theirs has become a law that they obviously are binding on everybody, aren't they? And remember he said that you bind heavy burdens and you won't lift your, the law wasn't a burden. But by the time the religious leaders got through with their interpretations of the law, it became a burden. I mean, it literally became a burden. And so he says, you bind these heavy burdens and you won't even lift a finger. You won't even have any mercy at all uh, for those people to, to help them out. And so the interesting thing is that uh, Jesus had a choice here. Did he have to heal on the Sabbath? Seems to go out of his way to do it, doesn't he? He's making a
2: statement.
0: Okay, he's making a. Then you come to the question. When it comes to traditions that uh, uh, fly in the face of a principle of God, do you avoid the conflict or do you take issue? I
2: believe in this situation, he's addressing it. They've taken the freedom out of the Sabbath they have within.
0: Okay, they, they've put some things that God didn't stick on it, right? That, uh, all right, They well, then how, is there a conflict here? Jesus doesn't respect their tradition, does he? And, and he flies right in the face of it. He challenges them on it, and he debates them on it. Well, then how do you contrast this? What is the difference to Paul making the statement, if eating meat will cause my brother to stumble, then I won't eat meat? And so Paul said, even though I know I can eat it, I won't eat it. And then he says, to the Jew I've become like a Jew, to the Gentile like a Gentile, I've become all things to all men that I might lead some. What is the difference in the way Paul is making these statements about uh, respecting certain things even though you don't have to? And Jesus here, who's flying right in the face of a tradition. What is the difference in, in those two approaches so far as the subject matter is concerned. There must be a difference. Either there's a difference in the subject matter, or we got a contradiction there. Because Paul's saying, I respect traditions uh, of people. I'll even not eat meat if it's going to cause you out Jesus, they've got a tradition here, and he tackles it and goes right after the religious leaders. What's the difference in the subject matter between Paul's statement of not making waves, uh, not doing anything that would distract from getting the gospel across, and Jesus here who is tackling the tradition openly.
5: He just goes back to intent and purpose again. Jesus is trying to show the truth, you know, the truth, and that's something like, if something is straight against God's, you know, love and mercy and everything, he's trying to show the right way, but if you're just, you know, like in Paul's case, if there's something, if you're trying to cause waves for the sake of causing waves,
0: yourself, you're trying to do it, see, there's just a difference because of the intent and Okay, are all, uh, are there traditions that people can have in religion that maybe that it's really no big deal if you know the truth about it, but still accepting that tradition or going ahead and doing it or not saying it's really not a big thing one way or the other. Are there those kinds of traditions? it's just not a big thing one way or the other. Nobody's getting hurt or anything. Uh, I mean, is anybody getting hurt that uh, uh, some of my Adventist friends are are vegetarians and don't want to eat meat? Are they hurting anybody? That, uh, well then, should I invite them here and and serve pork? You see, that that would, there's no, there's no need, that just, there's no need. Am I going to accomplish anything good or spiritual? But what if my friend has a tradition that if I follow is actually going to hinder me in getting the gospel to others? I
4: think they do. In, the, in L.G. White, we do stand up. In that,
0: okay. In, on that point. okay, that's a good point, Jack. And we've uh, uh, got a good example in Brother Cameron over there, don't we? That... Uh, that we uh, uh, it doesn't bother me that he's a a vegetarian or or anything and and man I can not eat meat from now on it's no big no big deal to me. But when it comes to accepting Eloge White as a prophetess of God, and her works equal with Paul, then we've got something that flies right in the face of the gospel and it stands in the way of it. So we can't we can't stand idly by. So things that innocent things that people do that really don't affect or misrepresent Christianity in any way. Uh, Nobody's getting hurt about it. Uh, That is one thing. But on the other hand, to have a tradition that is really misrepresenting God uh, and doing harm to the propagation of the will of God, that's something else. And so we see that when Jesus confronted something that was misrepresenting God and, and was making God look bad, is uh, is a result of their interpretation. I mean, after all, put yourself in Jesus' stand, from His stand, He's God, and and so He's given a law here that is for the good of humanity. Even even the animals were to rest on the Sabbath day, and these people have turned it into a a legalistic thing that it was the most uncomfortable day of the week, uh, very uncomfortable. Uh, you 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 knew that they were ready to stone you if you did the least little thing wrong, and you couldn't even follow your heart and exercise compassion uh, on that particular day. So God was looking bad, and and he tackled that issue. I think that's a principle that we can learn from today. And when you think about Paul and the Meats is that uh, among religious groups and uh, um, among people who are believers, there are certain traditions that whether you do or you don't do, you respect, nobody really gets hurt one way or the other. God's not misrepresented or anything like that. Then there are certain interpretations that may really be harmful and, and hinder the, the spreading of the gospel itself and it seems to me that uh, we take our stand on those things and, and as Hiram pointed out, the, the intent of heart and the spirit of the matter uh, seems to be all important to him. Any other observation anybody want to make on what we've covered?
2: So if we have if we, if we have traditions in the in the church right now that, that would hinder spiritual growth or hinder the spread of the gospel, then we shouldn't just sit out and
0: buy. Right. Actually I understand it, Mark. Uh, to give you an example on something we have a we have a man within our fellowship that will not partake of the Lord's Supper except on Sunday night, because it says supper. And that's and, and then also when they read, it was in the evening, when they partook of it, and so he partakes only on Sunday night. We have no problem whatsoever. He leads the songs for us on Sunday morning. Uh, I think he'd even lead a prayer for us when we partake of the bread and all. but that night, even though he's the only one, we have the Lord, we have the Lord's Supper, and he partakes of the, the supper at night. Is anybody being hurt by his uh, doing that at night?
2: Well, you, you mentioned also that, that that's keeping y'all from maybe doing some other type things on Sunday night. and So in my mind, I, I, I think, well, you know, we doing these other type
0: things. Encouraging people to have home Bible studies where they would invite friends and neighbors and that maybe we could reach out better. And we have dealt with this. And, and this is something that's never been a problem in the past, but now that we've dealt with it, and so there could be a possibility that it could reach that, or you maybe could work out a compromise. Uh, the group in Lebanon is doing exactly what I said, and they has still have a meeting at the building for the people that feel more comfortable there on Saturday night, Sunday night, and then for those that want to do the others, and they, you know, they get along fine on that. When could it really get to be a problem, though, with him on Sunday night? Could it get to be a problem where it, you, you had to really confront it? If he starts
3: condemning others for taking it on Sunday morning or something, if he says, this is not the way that you should be living, the Bible God. says this, this is the way
0: you need to do it. Okay, that's real good. That uh, The Pharisees weren't just uh, like this guy with the meat that Paul They weren't just following their conscience about this matter, were they? They were taking their interpretation and binding it as a dogmatic law on other people, and you had to do it that way. And the same thing, if the brother I mentioned reached the point... Where he stood up and condemned and said we were going to lose our soul, and this this got to be something that went on all the time, and he was uh, interfering with our reaching others. Well, then, right, we it'd have to be treated completely different. But if he's willing to respect consciences and recognize some things, and we are, then we can work together fine. So, in other words, you're saying that there there could be situations that you would handle like Paul or handle like Jesus, the same situation. Depended on how it was being handled by that brother, so far as his attitude is concerned.
3: Well, that particular situation that you mentioned about Paul is a very good example because I have I've run into people that uh, don't eat meat, and they say that they don't eat meat because you know, and they they push their beliefs on others, saying that that we shouldn't eat meat as well because that it right. wasn't intended that way, and and carry it. They carry it to an extreme rather than just saying this is what I believe personally. Right. That's the way I want to live. Right. You know, they, don't, they want to push it on other people too.
0: And it's interesting, uh, where this gets to be real important, by the way, is uh, not only can we see, where we, we all need to see where we stand up and, and where we tolerate and all, but uh, a lot of divisions occur for the very reason you mentioned, where somebody uh, is not satisfied with his own conscience but wants to take an interpretation and bind it on somebody else in a very legal way. And so, knowing how to break this down and and seeing what is directly commanded by God, and what is a matter of opinion or interpretation on the matter, uh, and then the intent of heart, all of this becomes very important.
5: I think sometimes we get to the point too; it's been tradition for so long that we don't even recognize that that part of our beliefs are tradition. And I think the same thing with the Pharisees and. And the thing that maybe to take note of is that uh, Jesus got more upset about that seemingly than anything else. You know, he had all kinds of compassion for uh, the lady that was caught in adultery and all, but but the binding of tradition uh, really seemed to, upset, seemed to upset him. So maybe that's worthy of us. I can note
0: sure. It. Of course, we experienced the thing here. We got a sign on our building that doesn't say Church of Christ. It says, Christians meet here. Everyone welcome. And uh, we found out that there are, there are some that believe that there is a command of the New Testament, that you have a sign that says the Church of Christ. Uh, that's a tradition. Uh, if you want to put a sign up there, that's fine. But that is a tradition. The invitation song after a sermon, um, that's a tradition. It's a tradition I I think is good and advantageous and all, but I'm saying it's still that uh, you have to be very careful. I've been in services where somebody got very disturbed because an invitation was not offered and and they went to see the elders on it and, and couldn't understand. I uh, another time I had a lady come up to me, wanted me to preach on apparel that uh, uh, she was bothered. We had young men waiting on the Lord's table and they had on jeans and shirt and they didn't have on a she she was you know an older lady she wanted to wear a suit and tie when they got up there uh, well that's if we get dressed up on Sunday in a suit and tie I wear a suit and tie but that's tradition isn't
3: it God's more concerned whether if we're there or not and if our hearts are right than what well, we're wearing
0: but things of that nature uh, by the way a church uh, had a law um, uh, back some years back when the young guys started to wear the hairs a little bit, hair a little bit long um, there was, this is before most of you all, now they're short again, they'll go by. But anyway, that some of the congregations got very disturbed, and the elders passed a law, At some of them had said that any hair that covered the ears, you know, was too long, and you couldn't wait on the Lord's table or anything like that, if your hair and and there was hard feelings and all on that type of thing. But those, uh, uh, it is good to be able to recognize what is a direct command of God, and, and then what are the various interpretations and traditions that people have uh, as they carry out these various commands? Mm-hmm. And Jesus, it seems to me, when people took their traditions and interpretations and bound them equally with the command, uh, he flew right in the face of it.
5: The example you gave of uh, um, the, the name of the church. Um, reminding me... Of, Remind me of the Pharisees somewhat, where um, the law said to love your neighbor, and, and of course their interpretation was love your neighbor and hate your enemy, and that's what Jesus was condemning when he said, "You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy." But I say unto you, that was their tradition. The part right. hate your enemy. That was that was their right. tradition. And so I think we have to be real careful. The law said love your neighbor and and so
0: they had problems because they didn't want to love Rome. And any, <laughs> Anything and, that
5: you add to, uh, you have to be careful because that sometimes what we do then becomes lost so, right. and you have to go back and say well does it say that just like you know that that the name of the church is Church of Christ and there cannot be any other name <laughs> you know no other name is Chris or all or whatever no.
0: But on that, they write, Rome was a hated enemy. And you got this law saying, love your neighbor as yourself. And they had problems with that. So they come up with an interpretation. Well, they can't be our neighbors. And so they loved their fellow Jews, and they hated the Romans. And and, and they actually taught that as a law of God. You hate your enemy. And Jesus flew right in the face. Moses never taught that. It was their tradition, their religious leaders that had taught it. Okay, he makes these statements about the kingdom of God. It's interesting, because to fully appreciate, I think, what he says here, beginning with verse 18, uh, you have to go back 2,000 years ago and forget about all we know right now. We understand about the kingdom of God today. But uh, what were they looking forward to in a kingdom right then when Jesus makes these statements? On the earthly
3: kingdom. Like, like what David established, earthly
0: kingdom. The Messiah's going to come, and and he's trying to get them to see the uh, the spirit, its spiritual nature. It's not going to be this big, splashy, flashy thing they're looking forward to. And so he says, uh, the kingdom of God. What can I compare it to? A mustard seed. You plant, and, and over a period of time, it grows, and and it becomes something that's big. And then it's like yeast, and you mix it, and then it spreads. So, the kingdom of God, according to Jesus, didn't seem to be, wasn't going to be some big, impressive organization that popped into existence and, and was impressive to all the countries. But it was starting out as something that was very, very small and insignificant and was just gradually going to spread, I mean, the, according to his thing there. And then, of course, uh, as we go further he'll make some other statements and say the kingdom will not come with observation so that you can say, lo, here it is, or lo, there it is, but the kingdom of God is within you. All through here, when he makes these statements, and he's on his way to Jerusalem, he is dealing specifically with misteachings on their part. And this is interesting, too, because you don't, when you look at the teaching of Jesus all through the Gospels, you don't find him just standing up with a sophisticated, prepared sermon so much as you find Jesus dealing specifically with the problems that they needed dealt with and with their questions. And so, where there was misinformation concerning the kingdom, concerning the laws, etc., uh, he was dealing specifically with it all, all the way through. And all the way through, he's having problems with what group of people again? Religious leaders, Uh, but yet they didn't stop him, and I I think we can learn something there that uh, That it's the law that's inspired not the not the religious leaders And all the way through his problem came from that source and yet he he continued Uh, Talks about this narrow gate uh, Make every effort to enter he said in verse uh, 24 and then um, In verse 28, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves, talking to those people right then. And so here are these people that have been looking so forward to go into the the kingdom of God. And he said, you're going to one day see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets, but you yourselves cast out. And again, we're dealing with, the religious leaders of that day. I'm talking about our context right here, that uh, you've got the, the religious leaders that are simply not going the way that God wants them to go. They refuse to bend. They refuse to give in. They're going to kill Jesus. Uh, and eventually, the very thing they said they want, they're not going to have. Uh, what's the problem here? Is this harsh on God's part? I mean, these people want to get in and, and can't. What is the, what's the real problem? Okay, their heart's not right, is it? Uh, do, as Jesus is talking here, do his apostles and all these other people that are listening gladly, do they understand the kingdom at this point? No. They don't. But their attitude's a lot different, isn't it? They just keep looking at that miracle, sort of like and uh, the other things in his life, and and listening to him, and like Nicodemus, we know you have to. I know you have to come from God because nobody could do these things that you do except God be with him. And so they come from the same background; they had the same misteaching, but their mind was completely different. Their mind was open. They were evaluating the evidence. They were willing to re-examine. I suggest to you that one of the most important things about you is not what you know, but your attitude of heart. Uh, you, you may know uh, a big chunk of what is right, but if you're very proud, uh, if, if, if you cannot be wrong, uh, then you may never know any more than that big chunk of whatever it is you know. On the other hand, you may know just a little bit and be wrong on a multitude of things, but if you're humble and you're honest and you're seeking and you've got a good attitude and your heart is right and you're hungering and thirsting after what's right, in the long run, you're going to wind up a whole lot better off than the person who may not may know a lot more about you. Uh, but the, the attitude uh, I think we see in his dealing with the religious leaders, look at the harlots and the publicans and how they responded to him and, and look at people like Matthew uh, who was a publican, Luke, a Gentile, writing this, and yet so many religious leaders. And it seems to me that you can believe in God, you can believe in the law, and yet you can be so full of pride or have such an attitude of heart that you shut out truth from yourself, that that openness of heart is one of the most important things about us. Who
2: was it? The attitude was trying to correct him but it was it was all in love. I mean he just wasn't right. trying to get them mad at him. Because I mean even I mean I see even like him healing the woman, he was correcting them, but it's also symbolic of what he's gonna do to Jerusalem. Right. And I mean his adi- his attitude is not I mean he used a lot of harsh words you say but it's not to condemn them. It's just to get them straight so so love but in
0: using that what I'm saying, he was very plain, uh, he knew their, he knew their heart, and uh, they had witnessed these miracles, they had listened to his teaching, they had seen his life, uh, and they still had rejected him in favor of their their interpretations and their desire for this kingdom, the way they wanted it to be and all, and uh, no, not in any mean way. But uh, something we might notice there, I think, David, uh, is it unchristian uh, to be frank and honest, according to what we have here, and, and to uh, deal in a uh, to differ with somebody and to express that difference? Is there anything unspiritual or unchristlike in, in doing that?
3: Depending on the way we do it.
0: Okay, the way, but you can do those things, right? Jesus did it. Uh
3: well,
0: Is it? Yeah. Go ahead. I'm
2: sorry. Well, this was just—I mean, this was almost in a way this was Jesus' last chance because he's on his way to Jerusalem for the last time, right. correct?
0: Right, and he so knows they're going to kill him. Pretty frustrated by now. Uh huh. Did Jesus ever get mad? Did he display his anger?
2: Yes.
0: Okay. Uh He did get mad. Uh What did he have to say about O. Herod?
4: Verse
0: 32. (laughs) Go tell that fox. Uh, So I'm saying uh, another thing when you look at Jesus, uh, one of the things we're doing here is getting a picture of Jesus. He's surely not this tiptoe through the lily type feminine person that uh, they draw pictures of. Halo overhead, long flowing hair, very soft features, Uh, uh, Never uh, uh, up until 30, he earned his living as a carpenter, and they didn't have uh, automatic saws then, or electric saws then, the way we do, and they had to handle rough wood and work with it with very primitive tools. He was at, and during this three-year ministry, he's constantly outside, isn't he? And he walks miles. Um, I'd say he's a pretty strong individual. And he's willing to look people right in the face and talk. Uh, In fact, one of these paradoxes in personality, that on the one hand he does this, and on the other hand he's merciful, kind, understanding, uh, the very softest qualities are in his personality, but uh, he definitely there's nothing unchristlike like about being willing to look individuals in the face and stand up for what, what you believe is right uh, and to be able to confront something that is wrong and, and even to debate it in some way that there is nothing unchrist-like uh, in that obviously it can be done you know, in a right way. Any other comments that anybody has to make on what we've covered?
4: I've got a, question, a couple of questions. The first is, when he talks about the narrow door of this passage here, I've heard this used a lot of times to, uh, to, to eliminate or talk about, or really put people on a guilt trip, I guess, about that we're not doing enough, and, and that there's a lot of people that think they're going to go to heaven, and they're not going. Right. And, I know Jesus isn't saying that, but he says here, uh, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. There's people that's trying to get in that don't, aren't going to. And he says, once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door to us. What What exactly is he talking about right there?
0: Okay, I thought that was good with the <coughs> statement you made because I agree with you. I think there have been times... That very sincere people who love God have been made to worry about their salvation. I mean, it's a straight and narrow gate, you know. And uh, and here you got this guy that's coming to service, and he's giving him his money, and he and he's singing praises to God, and 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 this lady that's struggling to bring up several children and work, etc., and and still uh, serve God, and they're they're exercising restraints in their lives and all, and and yet. Uh, Obviously, they're not perfect. They fall short in many areas. And then it's like, I still can't be sure. that The gate is just so small and so narrow that only the people that really go after it like, and by the way, the best at throwing this guilt trip at, trying to, is the Jehovah's Witness. If you've ever talked with them, they really, they'll tell you real quick how many doors they knock on and, and all the things they do that, that you don't do. Uh, uh, that is a misuse of it. What about uh, the people that were not going to get in here? the religious leaders. Were were they not working hard enough?
4: Working hard
0: okay, remember what he said? You encompass sea and land to make one proselyte? And when you make him you make him twofold more a son of hell than yourself. Hard workers. Did they study hard? Did they did they work hard to keep the law? I mean did they work hard to keep the Sabbath? Did they offer their sacrifices? Uh, were, did they stand up and pray long prayers and everything? Uh, did they give 10%? They did. So, so we can't be talking about uh, just, if you're going to work hard, I think you're going to have to work pretty hard to outwork some of these Pharisees. I mean, they were zealous people uh, and, and made a tremendous sacrifice. By the way, the teachers... Uh, they lived off what the disciples gave, and the teachers of that day, like the scribes, were tremendous scholars from everything I've read and yet lived on very little income. That They they very, very outstanding scholars and yet lived on little income and very hard-working individuals. Uh, what was the problem here? What were they... Uh, they... Uh, were not being honest. They, they seemed to be very proud. Uh, they weren't willing to humble themselves in, in any way. Were they being honest with Jesus in their, in their evaluation of him? Uh, what was gonna keep them out off that, that narrow path and, uh, and uh, the narrow gate and all? Was it gonna be their lack of effort or their attitude of heart? Seem be their attitude of heart. I believe, Mark, that it's been misused when you use this to sincere people who honestly believe in God and who are there worshiping God and are striving, and you're trying to get them to do some more things of what, and then you use you throw this at them. Well, maybe they ought to be doing more, but I don't believe this is the when you're here, you are with a passage that, in its context, is dealing with unbelievers who are being totally dishonest and very proud and refusing despite miracles or anything to accept Jesus and 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 they're and they're hard workers and then to put uh, you know the uh, some of these people in that context i don't believe that's an accurate use of that passage that's a maybe a good example of somebody wanting to say something but grabbing the wrong passage to say it one
4: thing i guess too is remember that there were There were some probably Pharisees and and leaders and and scholars and and all that did become Christians too. Right. look at Nicodemus and -hmm. and then eventually Paul. And and I guess some of those people, like Paul, he was very zealous for God as a Christian just as much as a Pharisee Mm -hmm. before.
0: And Jesus gave some indication, didn't he, that uh, there would be some of these people. He said, you've got one more sign the sign of Jonah, and there seems to be the indication that after that resurrection... By the way, at this point, have Jesus' own brothers embraced him? They haven't.
3: His family comes to him at one point and wants to take him off. uh uh-huh.
0: Sure do. And uh, they obviously... I often wonder about the understanding even of, of Mary. so far as they, Because, see, they all had this concept of the Messiah to be the son of David... And, and who would restore Israel to a great power and overthrow Rome. And you read about, uh, he says, hey, your mother and your brothers are out there wanting to get you. And he says, my mother and brothers are those who do the will of God. And uh, remember when the brothers chided him about not going to Jerusalem? He said, if you're really who you claim to believe, why don't you go on to Jerusalem? And yet uh, the brothers, two of the brothers, James and Jude, become outstanding Disciples after his resurrection, and James became known as James the Just in the early church, and Jude had a tremendous reputation. So they, and then Paul mentions that Jesus after his resurrection appeared to James. So that, uh, that uh, obviously you're right that some of, the, some of these people uh, would go ahead and, and see this. Does that,
2: that just seems kind of baffling to me? I mean, I don't know if they had this, this different. the kingdom and everything but I mean Mary knew that that she was a that she bore Jesus a a virgin and the spirit the angel came to her and told told her you know who he was going to be and so forth and it seems like they would have grown up like knowing that or something to me it just seems a little
0: oh she did uh, and they um Remember, it, it even t- she, t- she was told in the first that this sun is set for the rise and fall of many in Israel. But she didn't understand, and all indication is that none of them did, that the spiritual nature of the kingdom. They took it as a physical thing where he, the, he would reign in Jerusalem from the temple. Uh, Israel would overthrow Rome. And they looked that the rest of the world would be blessed through the reign of the Messiah. And that's how they, the promise to Abraham that all the families of the earth would be blessed with your seed, that's the way they in, interpreted it. And so, keep in mind, all Mary knew, and like all the prophets of the Old Testament, is what piece of information they had, but they didn't have it all. And that's why it was a Paul refers to it as a mystery. It was a mystery to them because they didn't have all the information. So then they would take what little information they had, And they would use their own minds to try to fill in all the details, and that's where they come up with their interpretations. And their interpretation on a lot of it was accurate. But when it came to Jesus himself, uh, the sacrifice, the the kingdom, uh, they were wrong on all of that in their their interpretation. But yet they loved God and they respected his law and they looked for the reign of the Messiah. Uh, And that brings in some other things you can talk about. In fact, hold your place here and we'll get close to ending this with this statement to simply show they did not understand uh, even at this point. Look at Acts uh, 1 even after his uh, resurrection. Look at Acts 1 and verse 6. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said, it is not for you to know the times or dates, but you will receive power when the Holy... In other words, until the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and continued to guide them further into all truth, they still had this understanding, despite all he said, that uh, this is this kingdom, we're going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Keep in mind, the last Israelite king... Went back to the days of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, The Babylonians had conquered Israel, Judah, carried him into captivity, and that happened in 605. And from 605 BC down to this time, there has been no king uh, in Judah. And so they're looking for their kingdom to be restored and their king to reign right there in Jerusalem. Remember uh, Peter got his sword and ready to fight. You know, they were they were ready. Uh, for for this type of king, but they still don't understand it here. Uh, were they saved? Total misunderstanding of the nature of the kingdom. What about the apostles? They were they repented. They were baptized, confessed Jesus, misunderstood all kinds of particulars about the kingdom. Were they saved? Okay. That. We have a growing process, don't we? And Jesus says that uh, I didn't teach you all truth. You were not yet able to bear it, but the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth in John sixteen twelve, And so that uh, when you say, well, how couldn't they see some of this? It, maybe it's uh, like saying that how we can't work calculus until we've had algebra and you can't work algebra until we've had math. And so that it's easy for us to look back with from our advantage point, but from theirs... They didn't have a lot of this information that we have. And, and based on what information they've got, uh, you know, they may have been doing very well so far as some of their interpretations. Well, didn't Jesus
2: even tell them
3: that there's a lot more things he'd like to tell them but they just wouldn't understand?
0: Them? Right, that's good. He said it a lot more, but they were, not even, they were not ready for it. There's
3: also times that it says that they were intentionally confounded so that they would not understand it until later. And even like on the road to a, ma- uh, a mass... That he met a couple of them after he had been resurrected, and they still, even after he had died, they still did not understand, no. and he had explained it to them.
0: But they were, I believe personally, that it was their own, just their own prejudice in their prejudice in the sense that they had been taught this interpretation for so long that they were blinded to him, and then it said he opened their mind by explaining to them the law of Moses and the Psalms, the prophets, the things that were written about him, but they had. Uh, uh, a lot of different interpretations on it that were were inaccurate, and yet the, a lot of it was was there. Uh, a good example of, they knew he was to be the son of David, and yet he was also going to be the son of God. So remember, he threw the passage at them, he says, who did David say he was? And they said, son of David. He said, is that so? Then why did David say, the Lord said to my Lord, set thou on my right hand? Uh, he said that uh, if David calls him his son, how could he also be his Lord. And remember, it said they couldn't answer him. And so they still refused to accept it and walked off. But what he was showing them is the passages that didn't fit their interpretation, they just pushed them aside. And then this that fit and they could understood that they grabbed hold of, but the other they just kicked aside. Well, the truth was there. But they they came up with an interpretation and they forced things in that, and if it didn't fit, they just pushed it aside. And he was constantly pull, pulling up passages of scripture that they just simply had not been honest with, and because it didn't fit their interpretation. Uh, anything we can learn from that?
4: We do
0: the same thing today. Sure, we can do. It means we can. In other words, unless we all want to believe that that we have been so such that we were born in an environment where we were taught everything perfect and all the interpretations we heard and that, and, and that we could never be influenced And in something's wrong. Uh, I think it's a very humbling thing and it makes you realize that you ought to constantly be studying. You need to, and, and re-examining uh, what you believe in the light of the scriptures. And there are plain straight commands and there's the evidences. And then there are those things where we have an interpretation based on a body of Scriptures, and we need to be aware of that and always open to new information. <clears throat> Anybody else want to make any comment? Okay, then we'll next time we'll continue on to the road to Jerusalem.